Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's co-producer, Sarah Agatoni. Some good news coming out of Egypt this week as Aya Hijazi has been released from detention. Mm-hmm. An Egyptian-American, Hijazi, along with her husband, Mohammed Hassanain, founded Baladi, an NGO that promotes a better life for street children. Hijazi, her husband, and six volunteers have been in detention for the past three years in Egypt. They were accused of child abuse and trafficking, um, but uh, those charges have since all been dropped. Uh, And Wade McMullen, who's an attorney at the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center, which represented Hijazi, has confirmed that she and her husband have been released and are with their family in Egypt. So good news. Good news. Yeah. Do you have any good news? Sure. <laughs> Depends on, you know. It looks qualified. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. good is this news exactly? So, first, actually, did you know that Leopold Senghor, former president of Senegal and also a poet, fought for France and spent two years as a Nazi prisoner of war? I did know that. Like, how often do you hear that a president of a whole other country fighting for another country and being imprisoned? Anyways, you can read about it in his book. He has a poetry book about it. So the good news is that this past week, France gave citizenship to 28 World War II and other conflicts veterans of African origin, 23 Senegalese, two Congolese, two Central Africans, and one Ivorian. Wow, 28 yeah. whole people. 28 whole people. <laughs> I great. mean, I just, it's, the thing is, is I know that we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of Africans right. that have fought on behalf of France in uh, World War One and World War Two, And at some point, 9% of the French army was made up of Senegalese, just Senegalese. Just Senegalese. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so this um, I mostly pull from a piece by Lily Kuo on quotes and also a BBC news piece. You know, like you were saying, good news must be qualified. It's worth yeah. asking to whose greater benefit this gesture is. One of the veterans, Mohamed Touré, is quoted as saying, President Hollande did what none of his predecessors ever imagined, and that repairs a lot of things. It should be noted that until 2010, these veterans received lower pensions than their French counterparts. Right. Yeah. So after um, African colonies gained independence in the 60s, France chose to freeze their military pensions, citing cheaper living costs in Africa. A French military veteran in 2006 got about 690 euros. A North African or Sub-Saharan African uh, soldier would get 61 euros. President Hollande is quoted as saying, uh, those who fought for France and those who make the choice to live there should be entitled to French citizenship. Which sounds very good, right? But where does this leave forced recruits who do not make the choice to move to France? So one thing one thing I'm wondering about with all of this mm-hmm. is, what about those who fought for the French but have since died? I mean, if we think about citizenship, I'm not even saying also like, it's what not that French, right? And it's not that like French citizenship is some prize to be won, yeah. right? I, but what I am saying is that if that's something you're going to be giving out as if it were a prize to be won, um, does that mean you're also bequeathing citizenship to their children and their grandchildren, right? Yeah. Because if we think about the way citizenship works, but for those who have since passed, you know, what? If anything, are you giving to their families, right? Back pay, for example, for all the pension that they didn't receive. Exactly. So this raises a lot of questions. And, you know, it is a victory, especially for activists who've been fighting for a while to get um, recognition for this veterans. 
But it's also important to weigh what is given, like you were saying, citizenship against what is lost and what, what cannot be given. Yeah, so big picture, France forcibly deployed men from its colonies all the way from the First World War in 1914 to the Algerian War in the 60s, perhaps even later. During this period, again, you had uprisings that had to be quelled violently. It seems to me the loss is greater than what can be restored with citizenship, but maybe I'm just cynical. I don't um, think you're that cynical. One thing I want to bring attention to is in Lily Quo's piece in Quartz Africa, she actually mentions work by Gregory Mann, who's a historian that's actually studied African soldiers who fought on the side of France in world wars. He has a book called Native Sons that was published by Duke University Press in 2006. Uh, so it's Native Sons, West African Veterans, and France in the 20th Century. And that book was actually recommended to us by Michelle Moyd, yeah. who featured in Episode 7. Her own research is on um, soldiers in colonial East Africa, but it made me think of her research when I read that. So a follow-up actually on last week's report from Zambia about treason charges for opposition leader yeah. Haka Ndehichilema, right, because he didn't let the president's convoy overtake his own. Right. Robbie Corey Boulet, who's an editor at World Politics Review, has an in-depth piece that analyzes the events in Zambia and speaks to analysts, including Grieve Chelwa, who go in-depth about what this event means for mm -hmm. politics in Zambia. In preparation for this week's interview with Dr. Laura Smith, we encourage you to read her piece with colleague Lauren Carruth on their research on refugees and migrants in Djibouti. This is a post with the monkey cage at the Washington Post titled, Wealthier Nations Can Learn from How Tiny Djibouti Welcomes Refugees. One quote in particular that I liked in their post came from a refugee camp administrator who said, and I quote, In Djibouti, we have a big heart. We open our hand. Refugees should stay here and work with dignity. I think that's a pretty good lesson for a lot of places. So check out our website ufamuafrica.com on Monday morning when we'll post links to the pieces we've mentioned here as well as bonus links to things we found interesting. In this week's episode, we speak with Georgetown University professor Lara Smith. She earned a master's degree in African studies and a PhD in political science at UCLA. Her book, Making Citizens in Africa, Ethnicity, Gender, and National Identity in Ethiopia, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Dr. Smith has taught and conducted research in refugee camps in East and Southern Africa and has ongoing research on civic education programs in Kenya. We talked to her this week about her recent research on refugees and migrants in Djibouti. Welcome, Lara, to Ufahamu Africa. Thanks for having me. Your first book, Making Citizens in Africa, Ethnicity, Gender, and National Identity in Ethiopia focused on people in Ethiopia. It drew on both historical and contemporary data to make arguments about meaningful citizenship in a single state. Your latest research, however, covers a lot more ground. Literally, uh, it's taking you to Kenya, Djibouti, and back to Ethiopia. Can you say a bit more about the research you're doing on refugees and migration in the Horn of Africa, and how do you see it as relating to or extending your earlier work, or would you say it's a departure? It's definitely not a departure. I see these things as really connecting, and the broadest umbrella that I'm interested in is citizenship globally and the ways in which the modern nation state 
and movement of citizens and non-citizens across borders on the continent is being shaped by state actors and citizens themselves and the movement of people. So yes, in Ethiopia, I was looking at structures of federalism and how both the state and the citizens themselves which have engaged in this dialogic process. From that, I actually was moving towards looking at Kenya. You know, Ethiopia is number five in the world, the largest refugee hoster in Africa. Kenya is the second largest in Africa. There are also some of the largest refugee hosters in the world. Ethiopia is number five in the world and Kenya is number seven. Being in those two countries and seeing the overlapping extent to which conversations about diversity and citizenship among and between groups within the country really overlap with conversations about refugees, migrants, and those on the border. And those are not really new questions. The numbers have certainly grown in recent years. But in many ways, these are questions that come from the creation of the state at independence and even earlier, certainly. And so the questions of refugees and mixed migrants in the Horn of Africa make a lot of sense when you think about it in the context of sort of the earlier citizenship questions that I had in Ethiopia. I start my book with a question of who is an Ethiopian citizen. That has led me to really taking up questions of refugees and migrants with a set of colleagues here at Georgetown who've looked at two refugee camps, one in Ethiopia in the Afar region that's mostly host to Afars of Eritrean origin, and then a refugee camp inside Djibouti that's um, been around for over 25 years that's mainly host to Somalis, but also some Ethiopians that have been there for a long time and some more recent Eritrean and Ethiopian refugees. So looking at hosts and refugee relations in those two camps, um, lots of counterintuitive findings, and we're actually hoping to publish those within the next six months. So looking forward to sharing those with all of you. The second project with my colleague, Lauren Cruz at American, we're hoping really there in Djibouti to look more at a constellation of kind of overlapping refugees and forced migrants, but also mixed migrants. So folks who are passing through Djibouti, on their way to um, Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states. Um, and Djibouti is just really this kind of amazing, complicated space of both refugees, asylum seekers, and mixed migrants um, that's really underexplored. I want to take a minute to talk about the distinctions between different people who are moving. And I know that these are sometimes thorny and even politically charged terms. What is a refugee as compared to an asylum seeker as compared to a mixed migrant? How can we make distinctions and should we be making these distinctions? It's an excellent question. And I think part of our objective in the Djibouti case will be to try to pull those things apart, certainly in terms of legal protections, right, okay. from the perspective of both national governments and the UNHCR. There are certain protections from the 1961 convention and then the OAU Treaty of 1969 that provide certain valuable protections for refugees um, who have to flee their country because they face persecution or they're fleeing for very specific reasons. An asylum seeker is one who seeks safety from persecution or serious harm in a country other than his own and is waiting decision on an application for refugee status. And the refugee similarly, right, is a person with, quote, a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political positions is outside of the country of his nationality and is unable or owing to such fear, unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. I mean, those are specific and important protections that that individual is owed to 
by the obligations of those international treaties. And countries have obligations not to close their borders to individuals who are fleeing persecution. And we've seen countries close their borders in violation of their obligations to those conventions and treaties that they've signed. It's really important to recognize that there are specific legal obligations that countries have and obligations that we also have to provide financial support to organizations like UNHCR that provide food and shelter to those who are legally registered as refugees and asylum seekers. On the other hand, I think your question gets at a really important point, which we see in the Europe case, in the Horn of Africa, in Libya, in North Africa, which is why do we need to make these distinctions? People are fleeing for a variety of crucial reasons, whether those are economic deprivation, maybe personal violence that they're experiencing in their family, in their community, and do they not also have a right to movement? Part of what motivates the research in Djibouti for Lauren and I was a sense that all the talk about, you know, and I'll put it in quotes that you can't see, the Europe crisis, right? Right. Actually, there are places on the continent that no one is talking about where humans are moving, not just as refugees. So Kenya and Ethiopia obviously are the place where people are fleeing to and then getting put into camps. Uganda, I think you highlighted a few weeks ago in one of your podcasts, is having a sort of innovative um, open camp policy that we might want to talk about in a second. And we really felt like this is an opportunity to rethink the idea that Europe is the place of the crisis, that in fact there are other dangerous crossings and other kind of complex places that need to be focused on. And two, that we need to continue to interrogate the use of terms like economic migrants versus refugees and asylum seekers and sort of look on the borders of those terms, right? We interviewed Romo Ethiopians and Ethiopian Somalis in a refugee camp called Aliade who had sought UNHCR protection, right? These definitions that I just read to you. We also, on the way to a town called Obok, interviewed different Ethiopians who were most definitely not seeking UNHCR protection. They were most definitely on the move, if you will, looking to be meeting up with individuals who were going to help them, uh, again, I put it in quotes, get into boats, to head over to Yemen, to be definitely smuggled or trafficked through Yemen. And the language that they use in Amharic and in Afanaromo is completely different to describe the circumstances that led them to leave Ethiopia. Technical terms notwithstanding, there definitely are different motivations at work in these different communities that we owe it to them to try to grapple with, even if the right to human movement is one that I am certainly committed to as a scholar. You've mentioned this new work that you're doing with Lauren Carruth at American University, and both of you wrote a piece for the Washington Post titled, Wealthier Nations Can Learn from How Tiny Djibouti Welcomes Refugees which drew from this research that you've been doing uh, with Lauren Carruth. What is it about the way Djibouti treats refugees that you think is a lesson for wealthier countries? There's a few models in the region that Djibouti seems to fit within. It's certainly not one without challenges, and it's one that we'll continue to explore. But what we found when we spoke both with um, officials in Djibouti, with international organizations, and with some of those we met along the way, 
is that this model of policy that says that refugee law recognizes the right of refugees to have access to education, healthcare, employment on the local market, not building walls, as they said, um, literally to us in terms of their approach to both their borders and their um, integration of refugees. You know, the lesson is both the countries in the region, what more can they do to host refugees and integrate them? in education, in healthcare, um, and in employment, I really walked away thinking, what more can be done by the international community, by bilateral donors, certainly like the United States, if there's not the political will to accept more refugees, for example, then clearly the commitments need to be made to do more to support countries that are hosting huge numbers of refugees. Because the numbers clearly show us, you know, repatriation, for example, is unlikely to happen anytime soon. Kakuma and also Aliade Camp in Djibouti, these are places where Somali refugees, for example, have spent decades and they deserve to not live in a state of permanent impermanence. You know, there are many Somali refugees here in the U.S. and efforts to ban entry to certain travelers and refugees by the Trump administration has had some serious consequences for Somali refugees here in the U.S. For example, a few weeks ago, we shared stories of Somali refugees walking during the dead of a cold winter's night from upstate New York, northern Wisconsin and Minnesota into Canada because they're hopeful that they'll have better opportunity there. During your research earlier this year, and in talking to some of these refugees and mixed migrants, did you encounter any that were already being affected by this policy shift in the U.S.? We definitely did, as you would expect. Um, and in fact, the night before we went to the camp that's almost exclusively Yemeni refugees called Markazi up in Obok, literally the night before was the night that the second travel ban was instituted. And as you would expect, of course, in the globally networked world, they were well aware of the second travel ban as we pulled into the refugee camp. The sort of sigh was, well, we now have to look at another country, right? We had hoped that America would be the country that we could look to. So we ended up interviewing a group of about four um, young men in their early to mid-20s. When we were invited into their tent, they had an American flag and a Canadian flag hanging on their wall on the inside. And they had these really lovely inspirational quotes in English and they had some other quotes in Arabic. They spoke quite a bit about their reasons for leaving, their timing for leaving, their intention to come to America, things they wanted to study, things they had been studying in Yemen. They were all quite talented individuals who had been studying or working. Some were fisher folks um, from one town and others were a little more professional. We asked them if anyone had left the camp to try to find their way on their own, to not wait for resettlement process. They spoke about individuals they knew who had left, and it was clear that some of them were thinking about that option for themselves and what that would involve. The implications for the region that Djibouti was talking about and the international organizations were talking about are sort of the larger implications of conflict in the region. A heightened conflict in, say, Yemen or in Somalia due to U.S. foreign policy decisions that could have pretty significant impact on conflict-induced migration flows into Djibouti. I wonder then what it's like, you know, being an American among refugees and asylum seekers, right, as this is happening. Before we went, there were individuals who thought that we shouldn't go, which is curious. Luckily, I have worked in Djibouti 
off and on since the 90s when I first worked with EGAT and then was there last year. And so that helped. And Lauren has actually worked right across the border for close to 10 years in an Ethiopian Somali community that's um, just by fate of colonialism and regional politics on the Ethiopia side. So we both you know, felt that we would go. Before we leave, are there any books related to life and politics in Africa that you've read? Uh, in the last year that you've enjoyed or you found really interesting? I actually had my students read Transit by Abdurrahman Wabiri, W-A-B-E-R-I. We also read City of Thorns by Ben Rollins, which actually was quite good, if anyone's familiar with it, about Dadaab. Um, a book that I really enjoyed called Making Freedom, Apartheid, Squatter Politics, and the Struggle for Home by Anne-Maria Mahulu. It's about informal settlements in Cape Town. Thanks, Laura, for sharing more about your work uh, and insights into movement in the Horn. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's co-producer. Nikki Okondo, Smith College Class of 2018, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. In recognition of the many Africans abroad, our featured song this week is Mucha and Diona by Audius, Blind Faith Entertainment. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. <laughs> Jandiona, swango jandino kona jandi daita, ubata nita zama kandi fundisa, nezipo zikutenga. Jandiona, aiwa kuchema musacheme, aiwa kuzita kutere, kana ndatoka. Jandiona, aya. Chandiwona, 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 chandi
Sandy Chile, but it's 